I'm Abraham Reisman, author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, and you're listening to The Nerd Byword. Front True Believers, your generalissimos. Chris and Dave are here with another five-star episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. In today's Byword Big Talk, we have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Abraham Reisman, author of the new biography, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, a title that has proven to be quite the conversation starter on the life and times of the man himself. But first... While we're waiting for the inevitable updates to download, let's spend some time covering the news of the nerd world. Dave, what's on the docket for this week? Well, it's official. Microsoft has completed its purchase of ZeniMax Media, the parent company of Bethesda. Now, Microsoft controls one of the most prolific and storied publishers of video games, such as Doom, Fallout, and the Elder Scrolls series. Phil Spencer, Executive Vice President of Microsoft Gaming, said in a statement, At every step building toward this moment, I've been inspired and motivated by the creativity, insight, and community-first approach of the talented people at Bethesda. Our goal is to give these teams the best foundation for doing their greatest work and to learn from them as we continue to build Xbox into an inclusive platform for all players. End quote. Now, as third-party developer, Bethesda games have historically released across platforms. Now, Spencer confirmed that future Bethesda games may be exclusive to Microsoft's Xbox and PC. He said in the same statement, and I quote, With the addition of the Bethesda creative teams, gamers should know that Xbox consoles, PC, and Game Pass will be the best place to experience new Bethesda games, including some new titles in the future that will be exclusive to Xbox and PC players. Several Bethesda, uh, several additional Bethesda games have already been added to Game Pass in the meantime. The future looks bright for the Xbox platform, which has been criticized during the previous gaming generation for its lack of exclusive titles. Now, I'm a big fan of Xbox's platform. I'll play my PlayStation consoles primarily for Sony exclusive games, but my go-to platform for multi-platform releases has been the Xbox for quite a few years now. Game Pass is a fantastic service. The online services in general on, on Microsoft's side are fantastic. The games run smooth. In short, I love my Xbox. The lack of exclusives has been a legitimate concern. However, I think Microsoft has done a decent job future-proofing their platform. They have bought and founded several new game development studios over the past couple of years. These moves, coupled with the Bethesda acquisition, I think we'll start yielding some exclusive games over the next few years that will uh, help Microsoft sort of pull even with Sony's exclusives. So the future is looking bright for Xbox fans. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I I can't say enough how happy I am as a Microsoft customer. I mean, um, in addition to Game Pass, they have things like Xbox All Access now, we don't have any of the next generation consoles in stock yet. I've I've been watching like a hawk. But um, if you're not familiar with All Access, in addition to 24 months of Game Pass, basically you can sublet a unit similar to the way you would like a cell phone and you pay an additional amount a month. So as opposed to like the $15 a month you would already pay for Game Pass Ultimate, 
for $34.99 for the Series X or $24.99 for the Series S of the next-gen console, you can get the console and Game Pass. So it's just an incredible value. Now, that being said, there aren't any available to sublet, but it's still just bang for your buck-wise. I'm very, very happy as a Microsoft customer. Um, and, And just looking forward into the future, when they inevitably get caught up, you know, stock-wise and, and consoles are ready to purchase. Um, I'm super excited with where they're going with this. Um, I can't say enough uh, great things about, you know, being an Xbox gamer. Also, shouts, uh, as I've said several times, to the uh, the digital store. Uh, they regularly have publisher sales like Ubisoft or, uh, you know, Warner Brothers games and, and, and the games that you've been waiting to, to, to pounce on. Um, and, and they have 70 to 80% off and it's just a great deal. Um, so super, super excited. Yeah. It's just a very exciting time to be an Xbox fan. Now, Chris, you are keeping us actually in the realm of video games. What have you got for us this week? So I've made my stance on the power of nostalgia uh, and and my cautionary stance towards it quite clear on the show, but there's one exception that I will always make. And that is with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, As I'll discuss in greater detail in today's nerd commendation, Turtle Mania has swept me up once again. It's truly remarkable how this one property can continue to stay eminently and persistently relevant after 30 years. Kevin Eastman and company uh, have been flying pedal to the metal since day one, and the fans have been the ones to reap the benefits. Um, I tweeted actually last week that I really wish we had a new TMNT video game for consoles. Um, you know, Mutants in Manhattan, a game that I really, really love playing on my 360, is not available in the digital store right now. Um, and I, as I have a, a digital-only console, unless I wanted to do some real, you know, maneuvering with a uh, extended hard drive, you know, I could get the disc version, but it's not something I'm interested in doing. So I tweeted out, I really want a new TMNT console game. Lo and behold, 48 hours later, my Hail Mikey was answered as Dotemu and Tribute Games released a trailer for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, an upcoming game that will be coming soon to PC and consoles. Not a great deal of specifics we're giving as as far as specific release date or which consoles... Uh, but Tribute has made their claim to fame on 16-bit retro-style games like the recent release of an all-time favorite, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, the game. In the footage shown during the trailer, Shredder's Revenge bears a striking resemblance to one of the seminal video games of my upbringing, Turtles in Time. Uh, needless to say, I'm psyched outside of my reptilian mind with this announcement and will be glued to the screen for further updates. A hearty kawabunga and booyakasha to you, Dave. Yeah, so uh, what what can I say here that you've not already touched on? I've been a lifelong uh, fan of the Turtles, and I'm going to be completely honest. I've been disappointed overall with how many poor uh, modern TMNT video games have been released. You know, I fondly re- fondly remember the 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 eight and sixteen bit era, um, particularly you know Turtles in Time or or even. Uh, Fall of the Foot Clan on the Game Boy. There were uh, a lot of really decent uh, Turtles games back uh, in the day. So seeing a a sort of a retro throwback like Shredder's Revenge is really exciting to me. This is the type of game um, that I think Turtles excelled at back in the day. There's nothing wrong with returning to an older gaming style that worked well for a particular franchise. You know, just look at uh, in recent years, you know, the new Super Mario Brothers games and how they kind of reinvigorated that 2D platforming thing that Mario always did so well. 
Um, and the folks behind uh, Shredder's Revenge are the same people that were involved with, you know, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, and you know, most recently, I think Streets of, Streets of Rage Four, which was a quality game. So I'm I'm really excited. I think quality of this game is is highly likely. So having a good turtle game and one that maybe tickles that nostalgia bone for some of those older 8 and 16 bit games sounds ideal to me i'm really really excited for this one yeah for sure i i I just can't wait uh that wraps up today's nerd news segment when we come back from this our first break we're going to be sitting down with abraham reisman author of true believer the rise and fall of stan lee stick around Welcome back, nerds. And for today's Byword Big Talk, we're here with author Abraham Reisman. He is the author of uh, the new book that has taken the comics world by storm, um, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. The book is a fascinating, in-depth look at the life of Stan the Man, and we highly recommend it. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, Mr. Reisman, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Mr. Goodness. Well, now I feel very, very flattered. Um, well, thank you. That was a very kind thing to say about the book. It's, it's, it's nice to be here. All right. So we always like to start our interviews with our guest's nerd origin story, our amazing fantasy 15, mm. if you will. So uh, what were the first elements of nerd media that had a big influence on you growing up? Oh, geez. Um, I mean, a lot of things. It's It's always weird to try and figure out what determines whether you turn into you know, the kind of person that people might call a nerd. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what factors conspired to make that happen, but, you know, my early touchstones were pretty standard issue. I loved Star Wars. I had literacy with Star Trek, but was not um, as into that. Um, you know, loved the various, you know, I'm a millennial, so the various superhero cartoon shows of the early 90s, such as, X-Men, the animated series, the Spider-Man cartoon, Marvel Action Hour, which is how I first became familiar with Stan Lee and Batman, the animated series, that that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, there's no like thrilling story of like how I, you know, stumbled across a mystic rune and it turned me into a nerd. Like it was just sort of <laughs> for whatever reason, that was the stuff that I gravitated toward. And then that was sort of the community that eventually once I was on the internet and going to comic cons that, um, you know, that was the community that I started to become a part of for better or worse. Ooh, now, now, now you've inspired a follow-up. What is, what is, what is some of the worst of being part of the nerd community? Well, the nerd community, I mean, is there a community? I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot of nerds, but, um, I guess I just, there's been a lot of toxic fandom going on lately and, you know, probably in in some sectors since forever, but especially in the past few years, it's been pretty frustrating, especially as like a lifelong star Wars fan to see how star Wars fandom has just descended into utter chaos. Um, And, you know, seeing the way that people who claim to love those movies talk about, you know, women and, people of color and trans people, et cetera, et cetera, is just, it's, it's pretty infuriating. So there are times when, and, and also there's just sort of this, this overall sometimes self-congratulate, not all the time, I'm not saying you guys are like this, but there can be a real self-congratulatory sort of we're the best because we're, we're the outcasts, even though we're not really outcasts anymore, at least in terms of whether our culture is being the cultural objects that we like are being accepted. You know, I mean, that stuff's 
all very mainstream now. And you still have, again, not you guys, you have other people who are, are very aggrieved all the time. And it's like, we won. I don't know what else you want. You know, I, I, I guess, I don't know. I, I don't mean to get too negative here. I, I was just making a slightly flippant remark, but um, I could go on and on about the things that frustrate me about geekdom, but I, I don't think that's what your listeners want to listen to. Well, and, and that's a, a topic that Dave and I have touched on on quite a bit, and it's it's a cause that is as near and dear to my heart as as someone who tries to be as open minded and as as welcoming as possible. I mean, like you think about the things that drew us into to nerd media, it was all about finding a safe place, and and sure. for for nerddom to kind of kind of turn on its on its head and and be the opposite of that it's just really frustrating and it's and very I, frustrating yeah and it, and you you hate seeing your the things you love you know because geekdom is so much about you know the things that you love rather than um you know necessarily it's all relational you know being a geek is all about your relation to other people and to the cultural objects and it's just frustrating to see these things that one loves being championed by people who one does not so much love, you know, or not so much, you know, not to denigrate people as people, but just to see causes that you find reprehensible being um, taken up by people who also love the media that you love can be very disheartening at times. But, um, you know, it's not all terrible. It's just every once in a while you, you're struck by how bad some sectors have become. Well, let, let's get a little positive then. Uh, let's get posy. <laughs> let's get these posy vibes going, man. I'm all about that. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about some of your previous work as a writer? Sure. Yeah. So I've been a journalist for about 16 years, 15, 16, something like that. Um, you know, uh, I didn't grow up wanting to be a journalist. I wanted to be an actor uh, or a history teacher. Those were sort of, for whatever reason, the two things that I decided I wanted to do. I got to college realized I hated theater people, uh, myself being one of them, uh, of course, but I, I couldn't deal with others um, and decided to to try a hand at journalism because you're in college, you can like go write for a newspaper. It's crazy how that works. I mean, it's not a good newspaper, but um, you're writing and you're getting your experience in. So I, I was very lucky to have um, a good community at my college paper where I got going, then graduated, worked for a newspaper that went out of business three months after I started working there. Uh, the economy collapsed because it was 2008. I got a job doing, um, you know, well, I guess you don't need my whole life story. You just want like, like the writing that I've done. Cause I can tell you my whole ridiculous spiel of my circuitous <laughs> route to where I got to today. But if you're just looking for more other writing, you know, I, I've written, uh, for a lot of different places, primarily for New York Magazine and its culture site, Vulture. Um, and, you know, when it comes to nerd topics, I've I've written a lot on the comic book industry, not just the comic book industry, but that was sort of the the niche that I started to um, try and try and hit. And, you know, stories that I've done for Vulture and New York Mag about the, the geek world and especially comics and things adapted from comics just completely runs the gamut. I was very lucky that I was in the right place at the right time and had um, wonderful coworkers and bosses who were encouraging and allowed me to write this stuff that is not traditionally written about in mainstream, you know, prestige journalism. 
Um, so it, it was, it was really great. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful. You know, I, I left full-time work there because I had to write this book. Um, and now I've got another book going on. Um, so I, I don't think I'll be going back full-time anywhere anytime soon, but, um, you know, while I was there, I would write about, let's see. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of the top of my head, just some examples. I wrote, you know, a long history of the ultimate Marvel experiment, you know, the ultimate, ultimate comics, ultimate X-Men, ultimate Spider-Man. I, I wrote, you know, long uh, character studies slash, you know, metatextual biographies of characters like, you know, Harley Quinn and John Constantine and a bunch of, bunch of other characters that, or, or stories that I sort of gave deep dive backgrounds into when they were getting adapted into movies or television shows. Um, and then, you know, profiles of people who create in the nerd space, um, you know, everyone from Kevin Smith to, um, I don't know why that's the name that's popping into my head and I can't think of any others off the top of my head, but there, there are plenty, don't worry. Um, so anyway, yeah, you go to my website, you can see a lot of examples of this stuff, but, um, I, I've, I've also written about plenty of non-nerd topics as well, but I, I want to stay on topic for our conversation. So I will say that immediately uh, when you were kind of listing the things you were interested in when you were uh, going to college, I recognize you now as a kindred spirit. How's considering, that? Oh, I am a history teacher. I also teach journalism to my students and, oh, I, did some, and I did some stage acting in college. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, we're looking in a mirror. Yeah, no, I, it's no, history. History was, I mean, I the history thing was mainly because my high school just had a, an absurdly for whatever reason, good uh, history department. It was a public high school, 3000 person public high school in suburban Illinois. But for some reason we had this like award-winningly great, um, history department. So, you know, that was basically where I learned how to actually write, um, much more so than what I learned in college or, or prior to that. So to shift gears a little bit, um, true believer is a fascinating book that tackles a really difficult, touchy subject. What made you want to dive in and tell this story? Well, I, to, just to clarify, I didn't actually pitch this. They came to me, which was very flattering. But, um, you know, once the offer was there, uh, well, you kind of have to go back in time because I the, the, the biography emerges from a profile that I wrote that was published in early 2016 um, of Stan. And uh, that also was not necessarily my idea. It kind of was and it kind of wasn't. I I was sitting at my desk one day and an editor walked by with a galley copy of Stan's 2015 graphic memoir and put it down on my desk and said, you should do something with this. So I, I started right working on this profile. And then about a week in, I went to go talk to him about it. And he said, profile, what are you talking about? I wanted you to write a short review. Um, and so there was a miscommunication, but to the editor's credit, he was like, keep going, just see what you can find. So I wrote this profile and what was interesting to me about it. And the reason I did sort of leap at it, even when it was not actually being offered to me, um, was, you know, here's this seminal figure that no one really knows much about. Um, you know, the, the Stan Lee story, such as it exists in popular mythology has been told countless times. But there's so many holes in that story and, and gaps and things that are just hand-waved. And it felt like, okay, well, there must be, I mean, th this person of great cultural import surely has an interesting story. Um, and, 
even if it's not interesting, it deserves to be explored and, you know, um, should be, should be analyzed because here's this person who has a lot of impact. And, you know, what I always say about the book is everybody knows Stan Lee, but nobody knows Stan Lee, you know, like he's this universally recognized figure that even his fans knew virtually nothing about. Um, you know, a lot of what had been said was either lies or, you know, gross exaggerations or whatever, or just, you know, sort of mythology. And, um, it felt like this was an opportunity to kind of find a story that hadn't really been told before. Um, at least in, in exactly this way. Now, the life of Stan Lee is by no means a brief topic to cover in a book the man had a very eventful life. And a long what, one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so what was your process for conducting such an immense amount of research? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I, I wish I had a great answer to it. I kind of just, it was a lot of triage, you know. There's a lot of doing, you know, days when you're doing three interviews and reading a book, you know, like an entire book in the day and, you know, trying to send out emails to set up more interviews and going through documents. I mean, it can get kind of packed. And then, then there are days when you're just procrastinating the hell out of yourself and you don't actually get anything done. But, um, I I don't know that I can really summarize exactly what the process was. It was, it was doing lots of interviews and reviewing lots of documents. I went to the Stanley archives at the university of Wyoming. Uh, we can get into why it's at the university of Wyoming if you want, but, um, you know, I went through thousands and thousands of pages of stuff and, um, recordings and such over there. And, you know, then was reviewing those and, and, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of aspects had to go into the production of this thing, but excuse me. Um, so yeah, there's no there's no simple answer to that, but I I just had to try and cram as much in as I could. You know, there's there's I don't really have a, a secret. You know, it's just every day you get up and go, okay, well, what do I have to do today? Or if I have to do a million things, what things do I feel most like doing that seem high priority? It's not a very sexy answer, but that's <laughs> that's basically how it worked. All right, so so you you laid it out there. Why in the world is it at the University of Wyoming? Yeah, so um, there, the University of Wyoming in Laramie has um, this uh, thing called the American Heritage Center, the AHC, that is uh, a collection of archives of cultural figures from the United States. Um, so in around 1980-81, um, the person who ran the AHC back then approached Stan and said, do you want to donate your papers and, and recordings and such? And according to Stan, the story goes that um, he uh, asked who else was had their archives stored there. And when they got to Jack Benny, the the great radio and and you know uh, performer of the the first half of the twentieth century into the early second half, um, you know he once once he knew that Jack Benny was in there, he said, "If it's good enough for Jack Benny, it's good enough for me." and decided to have his stuff donated there. So, I mean, the reason it's Wyoming is because they have the AHC, but also because as of like 1980-81, not many people were asking Stan to donate his papers. I mean, that was a period when like his glory days were, you know, a decade past, um, and he had not achieved the kind of mainstream fame that he later would, much later would. Um, So it's kind of this weird little ebb 
in some ways in his 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 fame and success um and therefore you know a place as you know disconnected from stan's life as the university of wyoming um you know what if they came calling he he was he was willing to hear them out so while reading this book, it's my personal opinion that you did a really great job of remaining as objective as possible while telling Thank these you. stories. Um, I appreciate that. How were you able to maintain like this intricate balance on topics that can be quite polarizing? I mean, you do your best. You know, you there's there's no again there's no sexy answer to that. You just try to stick to what you know and what you don't know. You either acknowledge that you don't know. Or you say, here's something that somebody else said uh, about what happened and take it with a grain of salt and you try and establish as much context as you can. Um, you know, I lucked out in that I don't really have a deep emotional relationship to Stan Lee or at least hadn't you know grown up with one. Um, and I never worked with Stan. I didn't even interview Stan for this book. I mean, or the profile. I, I um, you know, I had one email interview with him that was like five questions that were all censored. Um, and, um, you know, I asked him a question at a Q and a, and that was it. Um, you know, so I, I was able to, I think it was, it's a little easier to remain objective when you don't have like a deep emotional relationship with your subject. So that was, that was another kind of advantage that I had going into it. But yeah, you just, you just stick to what you know and, and try and present the facts as best you can. And then, operate from a place of respect for all kinds of readers and say to yourself, look, you, whatever your background is, I'm not here to try and make you feel bad about yourself or about the things you like. I'm, I'm here to tell a story. And um, you just hope that that comes through and that you don't come across as being, you know, really partisanly on one side or something like that. So the story of, and I, and I don't doubt I'm going to butcher this name, Kuza, in the introduction of the book. Oh, uh, yeah, for the, the Marcus Eli Ravage. Um, yeah, that's yeah, story, yeah. Yeah, that was really poignant for uh, Chris and I. Uh, the guy kind of feels like a, a relative we all have. Do you think that the same sentiment, you know, perhaps an element of his cultural heritage, played a part in Stan's web weaving, or is it a convenient coincidence? I think well, it was just it was. I mean, the, we I included it because I, I thought it was an interesting little sort of parable. Um, it doesn't have. I, I don't. I don't know that it's because, you know, Kuza and Stan's family come from similar stock that they and that Stan ended up being the way he was. Um, but it, it felt like it's one of those coincidences where you know I was going through. Uh, material about the Jews of Romania of the late 19th century. And somebody mentioned that, in, I think I was reading somebody's PhD thesis, and there was a mention of Marcus Eli Ravage, who I'd never heard of, uh, I'll be completely honest, um, but who was very popular in the early 20th century. Um, and it mentioned that he was from, he was a Romanian Jew. And I thought, okay, well, maybe there's some perspective in there. Um, and it turned out he was from the same county as, as Stan's mom. So it just felt like, and it's really well written. He, I mean, his his memoir that I plucked that from is is a really good piece of writing. And so it just, it was an interesting story that I just felt like kind of, you know, got at some of the themes of the book. But I don't think it's necessarily because they all came from the same cultural milieu that, um, 
you know, that Stan ended up being similar to Kuza. I think it's, it's just a, excuse me, universal human impulse. You know, you want to talk yourself up, you want to be the big guy and, um, you know, that can sometimes get you into trouble, but it can be fun while it lasts. Um, so, so probably the, the most noteworthy thing that came out of the book's release and, and the biggest, you know, center of controversy about, uh, about Stan himself is of course the creator credit between himself, Jack Kirby and, and Steve Ditko as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that a portion of that fiasco could be attributed to the fact that, you know, comics were still, you know, in their infant stage, you know, when, when all of this was taking place and, and they hadn't received the acclaim that they do now. Well, sure. Yeah. A big factor was, you know, a lot, one of the reasons I'd say it was adolescent as of the sixties, but yeah, you know, it was in an adolescent stage and it was still very fly by night and janky. People were not keeping extensive records about what was going on at these comics companies. Um, so one of the reasons, yeah, why there's this big, question of how much of these characters came from Stan, how much came from Jack, how much came from Steve. Um, one of the reasons that problem exists is because nobody was keeping extensive documentation. You know, there was, there was no, there was, there was just no need to, because it was such a, a, a an un, unloved or at least um, un, underappreciated by the mainstream medium and industry. So yeah, I mean, that's a big factor in why this is an outstanding controversy because nobody was really writing any of this down or, or doing a going out of their way to make sure it was all clear from the outset. So yeah, you end up with a lot of gaps that way. And, and I think a, an important thing to point out is, um, you know, a lot of us who grew up with, with Marvel comics um, or even DC is you remember those pages where you see Stanley presents and then you see written by, you see art by inks yeah. by, and that didn't exist at that time. No, sure. Well that that's yeah. Doing the Stan's decision to have credits for the writer, you know, quote unquote writer, quote unquote artist, the inker and the letterer, um, was was huge. Nobody had really done that in in that consistent a way, and um, you know that was huge for a lot of the the creators who were finally getting their names put into these comics. I mean, imagine God being a letterer. If you were Artie Simic, you know you were not getting your name in in lights prior to Stan deciding to have those credits there. Um, but you know, as Steve Ditko pointed out the the lord giveth and the lord taketh away you know gr- the credit was granted but the credit was misleading you know because it said written by stan lee and art by jack kirby or steve ditko or whoever when in fact the artists were co-writers and arguably even the primary writers because they were the ones who actually did the first draft um so you know it's it, it again it's a bit of a mixed bag it's it's yes there was more name brand recognition for these people but it was not name brand recognition that was exactly what they were doing. Now, the the early days at Marvel had quite that cast of characters, you know, Stan the showman, Kirby, the sort of macho roughneck from the mean streets, Ditko, who was sort of a quiet recluse. Mm -hmm. Given the stark contrasts of all their personalities, do you think that this conflict between Stan and his two biggest collaborators was sort of inevitable? Um, I don't know about conflict being inevitable, but it's certainly, um, you are right. There's a stark contrast and perhaps 
there was at least a greater opportunity for this conflict to exist because, um, you know, Stan was was very good at selling himself and Ditko and Kirby as the most notable co you know collaborators of of his. They were they were not great self salesmen. I mean, Ditko had no interest in it and just wanted to not be a public figure at all. And Kirby, um, you know, was affable and people loved him and he was great to be around, but he was not a great businessman and was not great at saying, you know, hey, look at me, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. So the fact that they weren't like that, I think opened up an opportunity for Stan to be able to kind of become the face of these comics, even though these were very much comics that were being made collaboratively. And and Stan may not have even arguably in a given issue been the primary contributor of of story and and so on. So you know, I don't know about it being inevitable, but I think on some level the opportunity was opened up because of those the opportunity for conflict was opened up because of that contrast. So many individuals have asserted that Stan's sole contributions to the comics of Marvel's heyday were dialogue and narration. If mm-hmm. that is indeed the case, if that is factual, in in your opinion, is that a significant um, and or essential part of the books being the words sure. that people are actually reading? Oh yeah, the, the, the dialogue and narration is enormously important. But I mean, you can't you can't just out of hand say, "Well, Stan wasn't doing anything other than that." Um, you know, with each writer artist, it was a different relationship. With each issue, it was a different process. I mean, th- these were very you know, mutable and malleable um, situations where you could have an issue where Stan really did have a detailed idea and would run it by a writer artist and the writer artist would then go draw it. And, you know, by the time Stan got to the dialogue and the captions, he'd already had a lot of influence. And then there were other issues, probably. I mean, again, we don't have documentation of this stuff, but from what you hear from people who worked with him, then there were other times when it was just, the writer artist would talk to Stan and say, here's what I'm going to do. Stan would say, okay. And then the writer artist would go home and, and do it. Um, and then Stan would add in the dialogue and narration. So, you know, it's unclear exactly how much that was, you know, what the d- division of labor was there. But um, even if it was just dialogue and narration, as it was with some of the latter, the, the latter issues rather of, um, uh, the original Amazing Spider-Man run with with uh, Ditko and, and Lee, um, you know that uh, the, even that is important. You know, Stan's Stan's dialogue and narration, that verbiage was extremely influential and really got people excited and kept people coming back. And it's not just the dialogue and narration; it's the letters pages. The letters pages were huge. I mean, you you excuse me, you talk to, as I did, um, any number of people who were huge Marvel heads back in the 60s when they were kids and teens, and they'll all tell you like, oh, sorry, excuse me. Um, They'll all tell you that one of the main things that kept them coming back was these letters pages where you could go and see Stan interacting with people like you, or maybe if you were lucky enough, even you yourself, if you sent in a letter and it got responded to. And even if you weren't seeing your letter being responded to, it felt like he knew how to talk to you and felt like he was talking directly to you. He was very good at establishing a voice for characters. And I mean, 
I, I, characters to a certain extent, some of them had clearer voices than others. I mean, a lot of the villains just sort of become generic kind of variations on Dr. Doom. Um, but, you know, some characters, the voice is unbelievably distinctive and, and crucial to the characters, such as, you know, the thing, for example, and, and, you know, and, and Spider-Man. Um, but, you know, yeah, that stuff was really, really essential. Um, and oh, I'm sorry, I remember what I was going to say. The, the voice of the characters was important, but, um, the voice of Stan Lee was probably the most important and significant voice that he was able to create in those, those days in the sixties. So in, in an interview with Kevin Smith, Stan claimed that he himself, or at least others' perception of him, was the basis for the character of J. Jonah Jameson. What are your thoughts on this? I, you know, I don't know. It, again, you get back to these these questions of who created what, and it just becomes very hard to pin down. I, uh, I would not be shocked at all to learn that, you, I mean... I'm 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 sort of stammering because I'm trying to remember exactly what Ditko said in his pamphlets about J. Joe to Jameson because, you know, um, Ditko around the last years of his life, last decades of his life would write these mail order pamphlets where he would talk about, um, you know, how these comics got made and so on and so forth. And I'm trying to remember what he said about J. Joe Jameson as a creation, but certainly by the time um, you know the stuff's actually being made beyond the initial creation of the character, I, I would be shocked if if Ditko was not basing a lot of Jameson off of his perceptions of Stan as you know this kind of blowhard editor who talks a lot and doesn't actually contribute anything. You know, Ditko was very resentful of Stan um, with with good cause, and um, you know it's, it's, I, I, I would not be shocked, but I, I, I don't, I can't tell you off the top of my head or off the top of anybody's head. Cause it is all lost in the distant mists of the past. Exactly. Whether that character was created to be like Stan. So one of the most interesting anecdotes for me was uh, the one where Stan joked that he was running for governor of New York because isn't that a wild really... story? I know it's yeah. very interesting. I, I when Steve Sherman Kirby's uh, assistant told me about that, I just my jaw dropped. It's a fast. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? But I agree. Well, it, you know, because of the way that you know it's it's laid out, and just my my initial you know thoughts on Stan is he is a politician. Um, mm. Would you agree with that? In some ways, sure. He was very good at um, public relations and at managing messaging. You know, I mean, he was great at that before that was necessarily a set of skills that everybody started training themselves to to have. Um, you know, he was very media savvy. He um, was very good at building personal mythology. I mean, yeah, I, I you can't help but wonder how far he could have gone if he actually had decided to run for elected office, but. Alas, we will never know. Um, how has writing this story changed your thoughts uh, and opinions on Stan, Jack, Marvel, and sort of the whole world of comics at large? Well, I mean, it, it's reinforced my belief that the comics industry is extremely shitty to its creators and laborers. Um, you know, that was that's that's a big thing. Um, you know, it's hard to say with individual people exactly what changed and what didn't uh, without falling into the trap of sort of talking about your own personal f 
feelings about these figures, which is not necessarily what I want to be doing as opposed to just, you know, sort of describing what they did. Um, but there was certainly a lot that I was not expecting to hear about Stan. You know, for example, the um, audio tapes that are audio recordings rather that I heard of him from the latter years of his life um, that uh, his former associate Kia Morgan had played for me, um, you know, where you hear Stan, you know, screaming obscenities at his daughter and, you know, saying racist and homophobic comments that was that was something that really changed my perception of of him insofar as I went uh I don't know I don't know everything you know and it's not that I thought I knew everything but you're you're in moments like that you're struck by just how much one cannot know about a person um no matter how much research you put into them um so you know th- you can't help but have things change somewhat over the course of learning about a person. But um, yeah, I, I guess that's my answer to that. It's really interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, the shitty treatment of, of comic creators by, you know, so many things. And as, as a huge mutant fan, um, you shared this on your Twitter feed. Uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago about uh, your, experience with with chris claremont and his treatment by you know oh, yeah, fox. fox and yeah. it, it just it, it brought me to tears as <laughs> as you you think as a comic book reader and as a comic book fan there are precious few people who have contributed more to comics than chris claremont and for them to you know even recently as as misspelling bob mcleod's name in the new yeah. mutants film like it, it just blows my no mind. i mean Fo- fox was really bad about that old fox you know it's since been bought so now it's disney and i'm sure they'll have uh different approaches but um yeah back in the day when fox was a separate company they were really bad about acknowledging creators yeah there's you know i mean bob mcleod getting his name in there even if it's misspelled was a step up from Louise Simonson, who, you know, is the person who came up with the idea for Apocalypse and then co-created him with Jackson Guise. And X-Men Apocalypse, the movie, comes out in 2016. She's not even thanked and or, nor invited to the premiere. You know, um, it, it's just absurd. And unfortunately, kind of par for the course because this is all work for hire. You don't have – there's no legal obligation to thank, much less pay, these people because when you're writing for – when you're writing or drawing for Marvel and, and DC, you don't own the underlying IP. You never do intellectual property. Sorry. Um, and that means studios can really screw you over because they don't have any actual obligation to you to acknowledge you or pay you for stuff that they could not do without your labor. You know, I mean, not to sound too much like a revolutionary here, but it's just, it's insane that we just accept that state of affairs in the comics industry and the industry of things adapted from comics when we don't accept it for so many other industries. And it, and it does seem to be actually um, radiating outwards. Um, I recall reading a, a few months back about the case of um, Alan Dean Foster and how Disney basically stopped paying uh, royalties for the Star Wars books that he had yeah. written. So it, it's, it's kind of crazy that that no, I mean, it, is but that's. Of- but that's the world. That's the franchise world. That's the geek franchise world. That's the other thing about, you know, when I said for better or for worse at the beginning of this interview was, you know, I find it very frustrating how the people who manage these geeky franchises treat labor and treat their fans. You know, there's just a lot of um, 
especially labor, that there's a lot of them going, well, the brand is all important here. So the fans are not going to care if we screw over the creators because all that matters is we keep the product coming out. And the trouble is they're kind of right. I mean, the average the average person who loves, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe isn't going to know that Jim Starlin single-handedly invented Thanos and up until he caused a huge fuss, he was not, you know, making anything virtually off of um, the use of his character for this, you know, enormous movie franchise. Um, you know, and people, it, it just wasn't an issue. And it, it very often isn't an issue. It's very hard to get people to actually pay attention and say, oh, this thing that I love is actually built on a set of values that I don't really share, you know? So th- again, I'm projecting my personal opinion, but surprise, surprise, Roy Thomas had a problem with your book. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. So he penned, he went as far as to pen a guest column on The Hollywood Reporter in which he he pushes back on the overall message of True Believer and says that it's overly mm-hmm. critical of Stan. Uh, do you have a response to that? Eh, I, Roy's entitled to his opinion. I, I, I was happy that he was willing to talk to me uh, for the book. Um, his quotes were extremely valuable and he has a relationship with Stan that is different from my relationship with Stan. And, um, I was, uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's all I'll say about that. He's, he's, I, I have no ill will towards Roy Thomas and, um, I appreciate that, uh, he, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm stammering for words cause I don't exactly know what to say, but it's, I have, I have, no ill will towards Roy Thomas. So um, he's very much entitled to his opinion. Now, Chris and I have been kind of going back and forth on this, and, and we just had to ask that Peter Paul, it's got to be a fictional character, right? There's no way that Peter Paul is real. He's no, very real. I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've met him, um, a fascinating character who probably could merit his own book. Um, there's a lot of claims and counterclaims and, actions and reactions that have made his life very interesting. And, um, you know, what? one of the things that's interesting about Peter Paul is you talk to him and everything comes across very understated. Like it's very, what, you know, I talked to him for God, I have no idea how long in total. I mean, we had a, an interview at his house and, and at a restaurant nearby that lasted God, like eight hours or something. But, um, in addition to that, we had lots of other, uh, times in which we spoke. And what's fascinating is, you know, he makes all these bombastic claims about his, his life and his career. And, um, you know, when he delivers it, it's just like, he's describing what he had for breakfast that morning, that morning, you know, it's never like, and then you won't believe what happened next. His delivery is always just, eh, you know, and then I was running a an anti-communist scheme where I was trying to sell fraudulent coffee to uh, the Cuban government. And he'll just say it like that. And excuse me, um, he'll just say it like that. And it's just, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, he's, he's unlike anybody else that I've met. So uh, do you have any current or future projects in the works that you can tease our audience? Sure. Yeah. The big one is I'm working on a second book. I, I'm, I'm, Writing a biography of Vince McMahon, the um, the oh my god, hero. oh you didn't know that? Oh, oh sorry, I figured, I figured you knew. Yeah, no, I'm writing, I'm writing a Vince McMahon bio, yeah, for Simon and Schuster. So oh that's my that's god. been out there for a while. I know, I know, it's very exciting. 
Okay, so yeah, so we think that this is a, a life under the microscope. Oh man, I can't wait for that one. <laughs> it's a, it'll be a different kind of biography, I'll warn you, because there's no Vince McMahon archive to go to, <laughs> um, and you know he he has a very different relationship to his fame and to his his image. Um, and he's and he's still around, you know, uh, as opposed to Stan, who had passed away by the time I was working on the book. So it'll be a different kind of biography, but I hope one that people will find interesting, even if it's it's not exactly the same kind of thing that I did the first time around. Have you reached out to him to actually speak to him? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, it's an unauthorized biography, um, but I I've had a perfectly pleasant set of interactions with WWE so far. I mean, they're very limited, but you know, I gave them a heads up that the book was about to get announced and, you know, reached out about seeing if I could get access to things. And, um, unsurprisingly they have, they they weren't rude about it or anything. They just were not, they're not going to play ball with it, which completely makes sense. I mean, I get it, but, um, you know, if, if the, the, my door is open and I I'd love it if we could collaborate on something and, and get, get, you know, people to talk and, and so on and so forth. But, uh, for the most part, it's, it's me not working through WWE, but rather, um, working around them. Can you, can you reveal any big name, uh, sources that you have talked to? (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think, is there anybody that I can say that wouldn't give away the game? Um, not Triple H. I know I said the game there. Okay. Oh, oh God. I thought that was an Easter egg. I realized as soon as I said that, I was like, that sounds like I'm teasing that I talked to Triple H, but, uh, no, he's, he's pretty firmly ensconced in the WWE machine. Oh, for sure. I I don't think is going to speak to me for this, but I'd rather not say specific names, but just trust me. I've talked to a lot of folks, both inside and outside wrestling who have a lot of interesting stuff to say about Vince. He's, he's a man who's had a huge impact and, uh, people have a lot to say. Would you say you have rock solid sources? <laughs> uh, let's just say I'm being stone cold sober when I say. Um, yeah. um, anyway, uh, no, it's it's uh, it's it should be good. I I maybe I'll I'll pop back on the pod when it comes. Absolutely. Out so where can uh, our audience go to follow you, support your work? Sure. Yeah. Come come visit me on my website. It's abrahamreisman.com. Uh, it's I before E on the Reisman, but if you do misspell it as E-I, I have that domain registered as well and it <laughs> redirects because everybody gets that spelling wrong. So abrahamreisman.com or you can follow me on Twitter where I spend too much time. Uh, it's at uh, Abraham Joseph is the, uh, the user handle. Abraham, thank you so much for joining us today and taking time. Hey, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Nerds, the book is True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. Um, And definitely check that out. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, wherever you get your books, you're definitely going to want to check this one out. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. When we come back from our final break, we're going to be hitting you with two more nerd commendations. And we're back with our final segment, Nerd Commendations. Dave, we're just going old school today. I guess the nostalgia is real. What do you have for your Nerd Commendation this week? Well, I am uh, an old guy. What can I say? And when it comes to gaming, I like old school things. You know, I lived through the entirety of Nintendo's career as a maker of video games, as hard as that is to believe. I'm not so set in my retro ways that I don't move forward and play modern consoles and modern games, but there is something deeply comforting, like a warm blanket about playing some old school games from my childhood. I'm particularly fond right now of Nintendo's online service. 
for the Switch, which provides access to a curated list of NES and Super Nintendo games. And I certainly wished there was more here. Uh, the list of games feels too short. There are several favorites I wished were part of the service. But, you know, we're at this point where it becomes increasingly difficult to play some of these games uh, from my childhood. So this service is definitely welcome. Still, so far, the game I've enjoyed most to revisit has been uh, Kirby's Adventure. Originally released for the NES, it was one of the last games released for the console. Programmers at this point had figured out how to get the most out of the aging system, and it really shows. The game for an NES game looks incredible. It's colorful, it's varied, and it's, it's frankly beautiful. The gameplay, a good old-fashioned side-scroller, is fantastic. You know, Kirby originally debuted on the uh, Game Boy, but here he gained the ability that kind of defines the character, which is to swallow enemies and duplicate their weapons and abilities. And it really did elevate Kirby's gameplay to a whole new level. The music of this game is peppy, fun, it's instantly iconic. The mini-games featured as bonus content are a blast, particularly the High Noon mini-game that sort of tests your reflexes, has this really cool Western theme to it, plus Kirby in a cowboy hat. Can't go wrong there. You know, alternate paths exist in the game uh, in to get you to different exits in the level, which unlock new levels or other secrets on the main map. For an older game like this, it's ridiculously entertaining, and it's easily one of the best games uh, on the NES. Playing it on Switch today is basically flawless. Uh, They've added several features, including like a rewind button stuff. It looks great on the big screen, but it also looks great on on the portable screen. And, you know, being able to play what was released originally as a console game, now in handheld mode, basically, on the Switch, is a total treat. So if you have Switch online uh, and you have an itch to play something old school, I would highly recommend jumping into Kirby's Adventure. It totally holds up, Chris. Yeah, I'm super excited. I, I actually just got back from the store with my brand new Nintendo Switch. So I'm, I'm trying to exercise, uh, you know, requisite caution and not just scooping up everything but um i'm definitely super excited kirby is is one of the the earliest games that i ever played and 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 has a a very special place in my heart as well yeah so uh you know the the online service for switch in general i mean is is really good i will say that uh, nintendo is kind of notorious for not doing very well with integrated online multiplayer and the like they've always been a little late to the game But one thing that they have generally done a decent job at is making their older back catalog available in some form. And I think that's really the selling point here. I'm less interested in, you know, playing Splatoon or Mario Kart multiplayer. I'm much more interested in paying my my annual fee of like, I think it's like $25 a year or something, and having access to to this back catalog library. Now, Chris, uh, you definitely have a theme in this episode. You're going to bring us back to the turtles. What have you got? Yeah, man. So I'm I'm living my best life right now. So um, as I strongly hinted in today's news segment, the Ninja Turtles have taken me to Dimension X and back here recently. I've been binging the current IDW series on Comixology Unlimited, and there are not enough words that I can say to express how much I'm enjoying it. I'm currently about 40 issues in, about 10 of the um, trade paperback 
you know, condensed with four issues each. And it is by far, get ready for this as a hot take of the episode. It's by far the best series I've read in quite some time, perhaps ever on an issue by issue basis. When you're talking about quality per issue, even my favorite runs of comics, you talk about Jason Aaron's Thor, you talk about the the Hickman Marvel run, the current Dawn of X run, Claremont run on X-Men. Even those runs have the inevitable stock inventory issues, the fill-in issues where the quality lets up. And that's completely understandable. You can't be expected to bring it every single issue. However, that is not the case here. Every single issue is action-packed and emotionally stirring. And I think that's probably due to the fact that uh, Tom Waltz and Kevin Eastman and company have, you know, kind of the liberty to release it when they're ready to. It's not this monthly or or bi-weekly release schedule that you have from the big two they they have the liberty to take their time and tell the story that they want to tell and they've been doing this series uh in particular since 2011 so i'm playing catch up but this is co-written by tom waltz and uh turtles co-creator kevin eastman um and it's remarkably well done and planned out offering a pitch perfect reboot to the turtles origin story and the world in which they live you know over the the history of, of the turtles uh you know 30 years of life we've seen you know reboot after reboot after reboot and this for for my for my money this is the best one yet um it's just the most realistic if if that can even be a thing with with mutant turtles but it's just it's just so well done it's a much more grown-up series than what you're accustomed to if you're just going based off the 80s television series and even the original films um if i had to to put it in a nutshell i'd say it's like a pg-13 version of the turtles there's a little bit of spicy language some curse words and some real action um it's not like cartoony type stuff that we're used to with our 90s animated cartoons. Um, but it's something that I'd definitely be comfortable with, you know, letting, you know, for say my my 11-year-old kids read. Um, artists on the series include Eastman himself, as well as Dan Duncan, Andy Kuhn, Ben Bates, and my favorite, Matt Santaluco. Other creators will also come on the title further along in the run, but I've only heard great things, so it looks like I have more of the same to look forward to. I'm also greatly anticipating the arrival of the fifth turtle, Jenica, for some fantastic girl power. Um, perhaps the greatest achievement by the creative team has been generating incredible storylines for characters that, uh, characters that previously I didn't really care about. Um, Casey Jones has an amazing backstory and complicated family history that directly ties into everything that's happening. Um, April is much better served as a science research assistant, in my opinion, directly involved, involved in the turtle's origin instead of the token female reporter. She didn't have a real lot of agency um, in the animated cartoon as much as I love it. And here's the kicker. I love Leonardo in this series. I've spent 30 plus years making jokes about how lame he was, but this series puts him at the forefront with an arc in which he is kidnapped and brainwashed by the shredder. And the follow-up arcs do a fantastic job of dealing with like the after effects of that and his PTSD. With his background in the military, former Marine and Desert Storm veteran Tom Waltz brings a fascinating and unique perspective to this series. The action and fight scenes seem more realistic and believable. Um, it's not just kicky, kicky, punchy, punchy. Um, and the aforementioned PTSD-like scenes with Leonardo really pack an emotional punch. Now, Comixology Unlimited has the first 100 or so issues. Um, I think they're currently at like 114 or something like that. Um, 118, maybe. 
Uh, but the first hundred issues are on Comixology Unlimited. So um, for five ninety nine a month, that's that's a deal you really can't pass up. So once more, Cowabunga. You know, I can only wholeheartedly echo this. I feel like we uh, we circled back around to this series a couple of times early on in the pod. I'm about in the same position as you are in that I'm playing catch-up. Uh, I've not been doing so with Comixology, but rather with the um, the big hardback IDW collection releases. I'm very, very fond of them because they also integrate uh, the various uh, micro-series and one-shots sort of into the proper place in, in the continuity. So you're getting the main series and all the, the side stories and one-shots sort of in, in one sitting placed in perfect continuity, which is a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, as I'm slowly slowly going through this and playing catch-up, much like you, it is so good. This series is probably my favorite TMNT interpretation, and that's saying a lot. Uh, the best thing about the series, I think, is how it effortlessly blends the best parts, you know, of various TMNT interpretations into something that that feels familiar, but at the same time, it, it feels also new and fresh. You know, what are the turtles? You know, are they just randomly mutated creatures, or is there an element of of reincarnation from ancient Japan? Well, why not both, right? So it does such a good job of bringing all these different strands and ideas that have been applied to the turtles together into a cohesive whole. The characterization of the turtles is great. Uh, the adventures are interesting. The, the reinvention of the characters simply work. I really like what they did with April O'Neil here. I really love what they did with Baxter Stockman as well. I think that was a really, really smart move, how they reinvented that character. And the art, you know, various artists come and go, but the art is always uniformly great, dynamic, fun to look at. Um, and I really love the various side stories and uh, micro series and how they further flesh out the characters. So, you know, I agree with you 100%. This is fantastic stuff. And I really think it may be some of the best TMNT content ever to hit the stands. I will go so far as to say this. There's always talk about rebooting the cinematic TMNT. And after the abomination of the last couple of movies, I think that's really uh, required at this point. If, if Hollywood has any sense at all, they will base any future cinematic outings of the TMNT on this run of comic books. And I will say also, you know, I skipped a little bit ahead just because of the hype surrounding uh, Jenica, and I was very pleased to see that this was not a, a repeat of Venus de Milo, Chris. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> um, but but I've heard I've heard great things as well on that series and 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 what I uh, what you mentioned the micro series and and what I love about that is you can do both. Like you can read it without doing the micro series and you can come back and read the micro series and it just only you know, enriches that. And, and so like, if you're, for example, reading the main series and it's like, Hey, for more of this information, I love that from like old Marvel comics for like, you know, read this in annual, whatever, or, you know, see TMNT villains, micro series. And, and it just adds to the wealth of understanding. And, and, in addition, at least to, to my knowledge, it introduces even new characters that are really, really awesome. Old Hob is a fantastic character. Um, Alapex is really great. Um, I really love that they lean into like the um, the ancient Japanese mysticism. That's super, super, super cool. I also love that like the turtles have their own personalities, and they're not just like the 
the archetype, you know, staunch cardboard characters. Like there's there's a particular part in the series where Donatello really gets into it with Splinter and 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 runs off and and you know gets pissed and and does his own thing and you know you think of Johnny as just like the techie geek and really gives him some depth of character and I've you know I've also talked about um you know Leonardo's arc is great Mikey is always fun he's you're always going to love Michelangelo um and and even Raph my personal favorite character they they all the you get the inevitable hot-headedness but then you also get like that Wolverine like aspect where he's reflective and like I'm sorry for that I, my my passion he's not just an just an a-hole like he he really has the depth of personality and it's like you know I'm really apologize for doing that I let my emotions get the best of me I just care so much about my family and protecting my unit and and my father and and it's just a really beautiful and well thought out series like I said they take their time with it and it's not just rushed to 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 meet the deadlines yeah I'll totally echo that it's a fantastic series and highly recommend it all right, that wraps up yet another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Special thanks again to Abraham Reisman. Be sure to check out True Believer. Be sure to check out uh, IEDW Ninja Turtles. Be sure to check out that Nintendo Switch Online for Kirby and other great content as well. Um, thanks so much for joining us. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple podcast and a review, um, as well as any other podcasting app that you enjoy or nerdbyword.com. And we want to hear from you, how you feel about the pod, uh, any ideas or thoughts you have about the things we discuss here. You can find us on social media. We are, uh, on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword. Uh, you can also find us individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave, and of course on Facebook at the nerd by word. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The nerd by word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.